come down and not feel that, that jittery effect after doing so much cocaine. I would take a Xanax or an Ambien, and then I'd do more cocaine to be able to stay up from that benzo that brought me down a little bit. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Welcome to Stigmatized. We are with J.B. Whitehouse today, who is a great leader in the recovery and mental health community. You've been down the dark road of addiction, but you rose from the ashes and really have built a very successful career inside of this industry. You're also a, a great human being. I've, we've known each other for a while, and that's a pretty great combo to have. So uh, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So right off the bat, would love for you to just get into your, your story and you know go back as far as you want, but where you've been and, and how you got on the right side of everything. Sure. Yeah. So the story with me starts in, in like the seventh, sixth or seventh grade, around the age of 13, maybe 12. Um, and that's when my friends and I had a core group of friends, about five or six guys that I had known forever. And, and, and uh, we were really close, played sports together hung out together, you know, we're really pretty much inseparable. And that's the time that we started experimenting with, with alcohol and marijuana primarily. And it was something that we saw brothers and sisters doing that were older than us. We saw cousins doing, you know, that were older than us, people that we looked up to, people that we, in a sense, idolized and um, wanted to see what it was all about, you know. So we would start stealing beers and you know, filling up water bottles full of gin, you know, and uh, and vodka, and uh, kind of stealing those from our parents, and then getting marijuana sold to us by older kids in school, because we wanted to see what it was like, you know, kind of feel a part of, and, and see what the, the fuss was about. And quickly, we, we kind of learned that we liked it, right? Because it produced this feeling, it produced this, this sense of euphoria that was appealing. So, you know, we continued to do it. And that that progressed, started at age 12 or 13, progressed to 14 and 15. At the age of 15, you know, we were, we were, we were getting after it every weekend pretty hard, um, you know, to the extent where we would be having older kids with fake IDs buy us beer, pay them a little tax, you know, and, <laughs> right. and, uh, and get that, that beer and, and liquor given to us and uh, do that every, every weekend, every Friday and Saturday. And then once we started to get a license, you know, at the age of 16, that's when, for me, a lot of it ramped up. Um, so now we had the ability to travel, right? So we were mobile. And uh, we would go around and, and just party, not only on the weekends, but then we started drinking and, and doing some different stuff in terms of partying on the weekdays, you know, in high school. And um, that was my first glimpse at the age of 16 um, of legal troubles. So I got arrested the first time in my life. I got arrested twice in the same night. Got arrested for OVI. And uh, I had gone from party to party party, you know, with uh, about 12 people in a Tahoe uh, that had been handed down to me by one of my cousins. And uh, when I got pulled over, I think we had probably 50. Uh, it was just me at that point. I had decided to leave where everybody was, you know, at the end of the night and go um, go over to a girl's house. Of, of course, I did not make it. I got pulled over in her driveway. And... Um, I think when the cop pulled me over, we had 50, I had 50 open containers, multiple cases of beer. Um, you know, it was just obviously pretty evident that, that I had been drinking. 
and um, he arrested me for OVI and uh, then took me to the, the station where I was pretty angry, pretty belligerent because I was pretty drunk, and uh, my parents picked me up. On the way home, my dad was pretty angry with me and said, uh, said some things to me in relation to, to getting rid of the car. This is over with. It's done. And I didn't, didn't take too kindly to that. So um, I started mouthing off, and, and we came to blows right there on the driveway when we got really? home. And my mother, yeah, my mother, uh, it freaked her out. So she called the cops again. The same cops came and, uh, and arrested me twice in the same night. And I was sent to juvenile detention for four days. So that was the first time I was ever arrested. It was twice in one night at the age of 16. And that was the first time I was arrested for substance use disorder. Um, at that point, I was grounded for what seemed like forever, what I was told was going to be forever. In reality, it was about six or seven months. But my parents, they had a, a bar in the basement uh, that they used for entertaining. And uh, and what I would do is go down there uh, with this this fear of missing out when I was grounded, Absolutely. this fear of, of being social, of being popular and cool, you know, losing that status somehow. And, uh, and I would go down there to relieve, you know, that, that anxiety and that, that sense of depression, which actually was the first time I experienced those things. So I would drink by myself. They had a, a little TV down there. I'd go down there, get a bottle of vodka, I'd start drinking, you know, and, and just watch movies by myself. And I did that consistently. And that grew not only on the weekends when I started to feel that sense of missing out, but it grew to the weekdays. At that point, you know, I, I just really used it as a coping mechanism and it worked for me. Um, so I continued to do it. And then, um, you know, once I got finally ungrounded, it was just back to the, to the same shit, back to the same stuff that I'd been doing, partying all the time. Um, I was really into sports in high school. I played football and lacrosse and, and our teams were, were pretty good. And that's something that I, I, I thought I wanted to do in college as well. Um, so keep going throughout high school, still getting more trouble, you know, you know, some underage possessions, underage consumptions. Uh, I got grounded again, back to the same routine of uh, going down there and and and, and uh, thieving liquor and, and beer from my parents and uh, hoping that they didn't notice, which I got pretty good at. You were locked up, no friends, go to school, come home, and that yeah. truly grounded right. for those long periods of time. Yeah, no cell Man, phone either. That's tough. Yeah. So yeah, you go to school- and my cousins would take me to school. They would take me to school, bring me home. If I had practice, then I practice, then I go straight home. And uh, then you hang out by yourself. Mm. So, golly. Yeah. For people like us, man, that's putting a lion in a cage. Yeah. And especially when you're that young and it's really important to you, you know, to, to be quote unquote cool, you know, to be social. Um, I mean, that's the world, right? So it was. It was pretty, uh, pretty gnarly, but I mean, I don't blame them. I was a maniac. Yeah, and I, I uh, ended up graduating high school. I never really liked high school. One of the only reasons that I actually, you know, tried to pass any classes was that I needed to remain eligible to play sports. Mm. And I ended up getting a scholarship to a D3 school uh, to play football and lacrosse. And I went to that school and... Um, we had a single dorm to myself, and about two months in uh, to spring, uh, to summer and, 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 and fall football practice, I ended up quitting the football team because I wanted more of the college experience. I wanted to, to socialize more, aka I just wanted to drink and get fucked up more. And it was that point where, again, I kind of reached another plateau in terms of like depression or, or 
you know, the quote unquote college experience not living up to what I thought it'd be. Um, because I went to a very small D3 school in this farming community in Ohio. And all my buddies had been going to big Division One schools, party schools, you know, and I saw everything that they were doing. And, and I got a little jealous because the kids and people that I was surrounded with at the school that I went to um, weren't like us. They didn't party like us, right? They, they didn't have that experience in high school. They weren't trying to take it to that next level as I always was. I would always relate, you know, to, you know, these, the, these guys who are juniors and seniors at this college. I mean, I look. I looked back and I said I partied harder than this when I was a sophomore in high school. Right. right. This. This is. This is lame. So on nights that you know no one was going out, which I thought was just kind of ridiculous to begin with. Every <laughs> night was a night that you should go out in my mind. I would stay in my dorm room and and drink and and smoke by myself. Um, they kind of relieve you know any uh, that that sense of this college experience not living up to to what I wanted to. Lo and behold, I academically failed at that school, was put on probation, and that was okay with me because I didn't want to return anyway. Uh, so I moved back home to Cincinnati and started running around, you know, with, with a lot of the same group that I did uh, there in high school, and uh, that's when I got introduced at the age of uh, at the age of nineteen, no, eighteen, um, to cocaine. And I uh, started doing it uh, when I moved home that summer. Also got introduced to things like Xanax and opiate painkillers, uh, which I had taken before, but not to the excess that I started to take them in as they slowly consumed me. Uh, attempted to go back to UC, you know, and I wanted to try to pull across there. That was short-lived. I ended up going back to school for, for a total of like a semester. And, um, and then I dropped out and, and primarily, well, I dropped out. At the same time, I got kicked out of my parents' home, you know, for, for stealing and, and for, you know, just all the behaviors that come along with addiction. And um, pretty much what they said to me is, hey, if you're going to continue to live this lifestyle and that's the lifestyle that you choose to live, you're not welcome here. And I said, okay, fuck you. And I left. And You were defiant yeah. for a lot of, the, a lot had, of all, all this time. I had a lot of anger and rage issues, uh, a lot of them. Um, yeah, and I couldn't process through my emotions um, the way that I, I've learned to now, the way that I, I needed to. Everything was very black and white. E either you were with my way of thinking or you weren't. And if you weren't, fuck you. That's the way I thought. And it was incredibly warped, but that that's that's the way I thought. And, um, you know, so I, I moved down to Clifton with a buddy uh, who had an apartment and started selling cocaine um, because my rationalization was this is the middle of the recession you know, no one's going to hire me. I even went to like two or three places to try to get hired so I could justify this to myself. They didn't hire me. So how am I going to make money? How am I going to feed myself? I did, you know, what I knew how to do, which was get drugs and started selling drugs, which was the, probably the worst decision that I ever made. Because if you're an addict and you have an ample supply of drugs, uh, things tend to get weird real quick. Um, but that's what I did. And I that, did that for far too long. Um, so my drugs of choice at that point in time, which over the next few years would become like my hardened drugs of choice, but I'm a polysubstance user, meaning that I would, I would drink, you know, primarily whiskey 
or vodka. I do a lot of cocaine to come down and not feel that that jittery effect after doing so much cocaine. I would take a Xanax or an Ambien, and then I would do more cocaine to be able to stay up from that benzo that brought me down a little bit to kind of even it out. And I would continue that all night. I mean, it's a recipe for a blackout. It's also a recipe for a heart attack. And naturally, when you're doing that on a consistent basis, I continue to get arrested more. Uh, I think before the age of 21, I had a total of three OVIs. And then I have several disorderly conducts, assault charges, possession charges, underage consumption charges. I think I have a total of 14. Um, and that was all before before I got sober at the age of 23. And long story short is that that continued to happen. My life continued to get worse. My, my life nearly ended time and time and time again, either through driving, you know, blacked out, you know, wasted or blacked out, you know, messed up or overdosing, you know, and, and that just continued to compile the, the, the consequences and negative things that, that were being taken from my life continued, continued to happen. Um, and through that period of time, obviously getting in a lot of legal trouble, your court ordered, you know, the treatment programs. Um, so I went through these programs, didn't really have any idea about getting sober. Um, don't think ultimately that, that a lot of those programs I would have gotten sober in. And um, just kind of bullshitted my way through those programs as I did, you know, with pretty much everything in my life. Um, got got back out and kept doing kept doing what I was doing. And uh, during that period of time, you know, I burnt down literally every relationship that I had with my family, relationships that I had with my friends. I burnt down everyone and everything around me. I was just this cancerous individual that 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 just was bad news and um you know for for months at a time i would hop from house to house doing what i could to try to get money um staying with whom i could until i wore out that welcome and uh and did that just for for far too long woke up too many times blacked out in jail not knowing what i've been charged with uh not knowing if i killed somebody not knowing if I'm ever going to leave that cell again because of something that I may have done. Uh, it's a very dark place to live in. And naturally, when you're living in that place, you know, you just are, are plagued with the, these, these co-occurring mental health disorders. So you have a substance use disorder, which at that time I was not willing to take a look at in terms of even acknowledging it. But then you have all these other things that come into play, like depression, anxiety, putting yourself in traumatic situations, literally almost dying. And having flash, you know, flashes of, of certain certain aspects of life, um, and when that goes untreated, and you're using, you know, a substance to relieve, you know, the, those those symptoms, you know, it's it's always going to be bad news. And um, so I did that for, you know, for a long time. And then uh, the last time I drank, I had been staying in my aunt's house, and it was supposed to be just for a night or two. I ended up squeezing like four or five nights out of it. In that four or five night period, I drank every bottle of, uh, of liquor in her house and I took every pill, whether it got me fucked up or not. Um, I got a kidney infection on like the third day. Had to, she had to take me to the hospital. And uh, naturally, I don't know what happened. I don't know why. You know, it just, it just happened, you know. But I knew exactly why. It's because I just drank, you know, a bottle and a half of, of vodka the night before. Um, went back to her house and, and commenced drinking. And, um, the last time I drank, I was locked. I locked myself in the bathroom of uh, of her basement, 
and I had a warm bottle of rum and I took 17 shots in a matter of 20 minutes, um, just slugging them, taking them back. And uh, before I blacked out, I looked up in the mirror and uh, I saw this, this figure looking at me and, and, and I knew it was me, um, but it didn't look like me. You know, I was bloated. Uh, my skin was, was jaundiced, had a yellowish green tint to it. Uh, I just didn't look like my face. And that was what I consider my moment of clarity because I, hear this, I heard this voice uh, as clear as day. I just, just come out from nowhere and say, what the hell are you doing? You know, what have you become? And then I blacked out. And then I proceeded to drive my car uh, again, blacked out for, you know, the hundredth time that evening. And um, woke up the next morning to her screaming, my aunt screaming at me because she realized that I had, you know, done what I've done. And, and uh, that was the last time I drank. So from there, I finally had this shred of willingness you know, the, this desperation, and it finally became clear to me that it was no longer a matter of, of, of if I was going to die, but a matter of when. And um, I had a willingness to try to do something to hopefully, hopefully change that. Um, I would point out that, you know, for years, my, my, for instance, my mother was very religious and um, still is, but had come to terms with God that her eldest son was going to die before the age of 24. She had come to terms with that with God. I, I can't comprehend what that is like. And I can't tell you how it feels to be the person that caused that. So that that's just a kind of a glimpse, you know, into the destruction that I caused over those years. And I mean, it would be a regular occurrence for me to envision my funeral, right? Because mm-hmm. I thought I was going to die. I thought I was I, I thought it was inevitability, you know, that I would die you know, before I was 24 years old. And um, just envisioning that funeral, who would come? What would it be like? What would they say? That was regular. Mm-hmm. You know, how many people would actually show up? Would it be big? It's heavy, you man. know. It, it was just, it was pretty gnarly. And, um, but when I had finally that, that shred of willingness and that, that desperation, um, I did some research, you know, and, and I, I, I looked for some facilities that might have the ability to help me. And, uh, and ended up finding one in California. Um, there was a dual diagnosis facility, and that's the treatment of substance use disorders and secondary co-occurring mental health disorders, specifically for young adults. But what caught my eye was they had an aspect to their program that they called the college program. So after you've been there for a, for a certain period of time, and it was deemed okay by the people that, that are working with you, you could actually petition college courses and, and go back to school while you were in treatment. That caught my eye. Because at that time, I was 23 years old. I got sober at the age of 23. All of my friends and people that I knew had started careers, had graduated college, had gone to grad school, were progressing with their life. And before then, at that time, I had been living down in Clifton, selling drugs and trying not to die. You know, so what I thought was, hey, if by some miracle I have the ability to get sober um, and change, you know, the, the direction that my life had been heading in, then then hopefully maybe I can actually do something with this life. Um, so that's where, where I went. And I sent myself to that program in California. And that's where I was introduced to a model of treatment that, that I didn't know existed because nothing like it was here in Ohio or to my knowledge in the Midwest at that time. And ended up going through that program for the period of a year. Um, didn't, didn't speak or, or see my parents. I saw my father when I had eight months sober. My mother wouldn't see me until I had a year sober because of, of the damage that I had done to them. 
And she uh, and she put that number out there. She just wouldn't a year? do it. I came home when I had a year sober. She said I was okay to come home when I had a year sober, uh, just to visit. I stayed in California for six years, um, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't see me. Um, I did a lot of evil things, you know, to her and to them, right. um, as as most people do when they're in their active addiction, because um, it's not you. You know, you are controlled by something. Often, you're controlled by a substance, and that substance makes you do incomprehensible things and, and demoralizes you to a point that that if you haven't been through it, you can't begin to understand it. Right. So when you were in California in treatment, did your parents do research on their own? I mean, did they get invested in what you went through? And I know that sounds selfish that, you know, what you went through compared to what you did to them, but you know what I mean? Did, yeah. did, did they... So I hit a lot of things. Treatment, they, I only told them, which was kind of astonishing, um, that I only was drinking and, and smoking marijuana, right? They weren't aware of the fact that, that I was actively dependent on opiates, cocaine, and benzodiazepines. Uh, I wouldn't allow the clinicians, because I still had this sense of resentment toward my parents that was completely unfounded, but I still had it. I wouldn't let anyone communicate with them for at least like 120 days while I was in treatment. They weren't really even aware that I was going to treatment. I just sent myself. Um, so once they had the ability, I was kind of coerced by my therapist and caseworker there to like, hey, you need to let us speak to them. Like we need to be able to work with you on this piece. And I finally did. And that's when they, you know, were, uh, starting to find out about all these things that I had done. And it, it answered a lot of questions. I think it was probably things that they, um, well, they didn't know, but they, they, they kind of, I guess, supposed, you know, they, they probably thought there was a lot more going on, but they could never actually put it, put it, a name to it. And then they were, they were able to, um, and they, yeah, I mean, they always want to obviously see that the health of their son restored and hope that he can change his life. But they were very wary of that, in fact, because how many times before have I said that I'm not going to do these things anymore and kind of gain their trust back just to, to rip it out from one of them the next day. You know, they're, they're wary. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that my mother wouldn't see me. Is she was tired of being burned. She was tired of being deceived. She wanted to be able to believe in her son, but she was sick of being stabbed in the back every other time. What was the name of the facility that where you went? Uh, NTS. Okay. Did you have, did you have to grind through guilt and shame pretty long and hard? <laughs> we all do, but yeah. So it took me, I think, until like month seven or eight of sobriety to start even thinking about forgiving myself. Right. So I, I worked the steps pretty quick. It was doing the things I needed to do in regards to the program to, to, to cement a foundation for my own recovery on a therapeutic basis and through a clinical, you know, uh, perspective. Um, so I, I started to make amends and, and truly meant them, you know, pretty early on, maybe maybe 90 days in. Um, but forgiving myself for the, the things that I had done took a lot longer. Yeah, so I sat with a lot of a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. Um, and that was regular for me. So actually, 
you know, it, it's scary, but you become used to it. You know, it, it's like you learn to sit in it. And it, it's not something anyone should ever learn to sit in, but you do um, when it's a regular occurrence in your life. I can relate to a lot of what you just talked about and been through, but one thing that is in particularly we have in common is the fear of missing out. Mm. Ever since I was little, and I think probably a lot of us do, but that's what makes us turn it up. It was so, I don't even know the word for it in, in, in my life at that time. Like the prospect of not going out, like on a Friday or a Saturday, especially like when I was 15 or 16, was like the end of the world. And that's so warped in terms of thinking, but that's just the way it was. And, um, you know, it, it started to fuel a lot of these behaviors. Fortunately for me, I've kind of grown out of that. I, I've learned, and I learned near the end, you know, before I, I quit drinking and using that all the parties, all the bars, all the situations, I mean, it was all the same shit. It was always the same shit, maybe a different venue, maybe a different group of people, but the type of person that was there is the same. And you're really not missing out on anything. Oh, absolutely you know? not. And, and half the time I would go, I'd get arrested. Half the time I'd go, I'd get in a fight. Half the time I'd go, you know, bad things would happen. You know, so luckily when I got sober, I still had to work on that a little bit, but I, I, I started to realize that I'm not missing out. You right. know, I, I'm where I need to be. And 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 uh and if I need to be somewhere then then I'll I'll be there, right? And if I'm not, then it's not that big a deal. Um Okay. You are now came back to Cincinnati yeah. and you worked in a few places in your six years in California in the recovery community. Yeah, I worked for for two places. So when I when I got a year sober, um I started working in treatment. I felt compelled to, uh, to be able to hopefully help, you know, guys like me um, be able to, to understand that there is hope, that you can walk a path of recovery, and that you can recover, and that life is not over. Um, I felt pretty compelled to do that, so I started working on an operational basis, uh, graveyard shift, manag managing a men's residential home. Did that for like seven months, and then some of the the, the people at the facility noticed that, hey... You know, you got some traits that, that lean toward more, maybe more of an administrative role. And they asked me to interview for an admissions position. And I said, sure. And I ended up getting the position. So I started working in admissions um, to help essentially families and individuals who had loved ones in chaotic driven situations, you know, get help. So I worked uh, there in admissions for a while. And one of my mentors uh, who really taught me the ins and outs of that um, after about a year of doing that, ended up leaving, you know, to go to Hotel California by the sea there in Newport Beach and asked me if I'd like to go with him. And I said, absolutely. Um, because the facility that I was working for had a great clinical program. It treated its clients exactly what they needed, to be, how they needed to be treated in terms of the, like what they were approaching and help them regain their own lives. But the corporate end was, or the, the administrative end was, was something in terms of a culture that I just wasn't really into. Um, so I, I was very willing, you know, to go and, and help, you know, start some of the uh, the admission stuff there at Hotel California by the Sea and um, ended up doing that and then uh, helped manage, you know, those admissions teams and helped over the years, you know, start to do some business development, uh, some marketing and, 
at the same time developed sober living environments for young adult males ages 18 to 30 that helped them transition from residential treatment to the real world and start to, to learn how to live in the real world. So we started with one house and over the course of three and a half, four years, you know, we had we had quite a few more. So we were helping about 50 guys at a time that were all, you know, around the same age that, that we were carry forward with their lives. So I, I started noticing in terms of, of what I'm doing here now in Cincinnati, um, the model of treatment that I went through was far different than any, anything I ever experienced here in Cincinnati. Uh, it was one that was actually carried out in the community and, and allowed you to help develop that foundation for recovery through you know clinical and, and therapeutic-driven practices and evidence-based models of treatment. But at the same time, you were active in the community, in the recovery community, active going to activities, learning how to have fun you know, being sober, and, and you went through this program in real time, in the real world. And with doing that, it allowed you to be uncomfortable, to be triggered by certain things. But instead of in the past, reverting back to an old method of, of using or coping mechanism to, to kind of deal with that uncomfortability, you know, you had the ability to have really professionals there to help help you process through that and uh, and learn, you know, to take a new path, learn to gain new perspectives so you don't have to rely upon what you've relied upon for for years. And um, it was something that was, you know, something I never experienced before. And it worked for me. And over, you know, a few years of working in treatment, I saw it work for hundreds upon hundreds of other individuals who navigated their way to similar success in the capacity in which I had. And I started wondering, why doesn't a program like this or a model like this exist in the city I'm from or the state that I was born in? More importantly, how many people or friends that I have known that have since died would have benefited from it that did not have the opportunity to go to California like I did? And it pissed me off at first, and, and then I got to work. Um, so I pushed for two years to be able to be granted the opportunity with Hotel California by the Sea to bring you know that model of treatment hopefully back home to Cincinnati. In June of 2017, uh, after two years, I finally got the green light. You know, I moved home 10 days later, drove a U-Haul 32 hours with my father, with my, my truck on the back, and arrived uh, here in Cincinnati and uh, started building the infrastructure for that facility for over a year and, uh, and officially launched in August 2018. What was that process? I mean, that was a massive undertaking. Yeah. What was that like? Proves to you how bad you want it. It was, it was, what was it like? It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It continues to be the hardest thing that I, I've ever done daily. Um, but I sincerely believe that if you're working in the field of treatment and you don't have a passion, like a sincere and, 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 and great passion or devotion for the work that you're doing, you won't succeed. So that's what I think helped me, help propel me through, you know, some of the, some of the, the tough times, um, because it's not easy. I mean, you're bringing a model of treatment to a very conservative atmosphere, very conservative culture that never existed before. I was scoffed at, laughed at, you know, told that's never going to work. That's impossible. And you just have to have the mentality uh, with the passion that, that accompanied with, with the passion, you know, that you have for, for the work that you do to say, okay, thanks for, thanks for your input. Watch me. Right. You know, so it's... Yeah, there was there were some hurdles, there were some obstacles, but that just in my mind proves how bad do you want it. And we're gonna talk about stigma, but and I spoke to somebody the other day about, you know, California is probably one of the most progressive as far as yeah. acceptance and you've got a lot of celebrities and a lot of people that are out in front talking about it, which is amazing. But I can imagine coming back to 
we're just above the Bible Belt, but a lot of you know closed off individuals yeah. mindsets that don't jive or get what we're all about. So you know what's unfortunate is what I've seen is the opioid epidemic and and really the addiction epidemic overall. As it's become more publicized and, and more in the public view, people have become you know more open to taking a look at it and saying, "What's this? You know what what's going on here?" And 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 from that, being able to gain a further understanding uh, in regards to stigma. Um, Ten years ago, I think it was a completely different story. I think I think the stigma was probably heavier than, than it is today. And ten years ago, I don't believe we would have had the same response, you know, in terms of, of we've had a great response in the community for people that say, we're glad you're here, you know, because almost everybody that you speak to is affected by someone who has gone through addiction, died from addiction, or or affiliated with someone who has addiction in some way. Mental health. Anything. Yeah. You know, so it, they, they both stem from each other. And I think because of that, especially with, with what, have, what has occurred over the last few years, um, people started to understand that, that we need help. You know, we need more help. People need help. And that addiction doesn't discriminate, you know, because I came from the suburbs on the east side of Cincinnati. You know, I, I had a certain path that if you were to, to write my life down on paper, I should have followed. I ended up homeless selling drugs, you know, in, in areas of the city at that time that, that weren't. I think you know I, I would I would be right on the the, the border there of, of Clifton and over the Rhine when over the Rhine was you know rated the, the number one most dangerous neighborhood in this in this in this in the nation for murder per capita, and I would be frequently down there you know doing my thing in regards to in regards to that lifestyle. Um, so I shouldn't you know have quote unquote been down there, but that's that's what happened. Addiction doesn't discriminate. It doesn't Absolutely. matter if you come from. A certain background it doesn't matter what your color is in terms of your skin. It doesn't matter if you're white collar, blue collar, no collar. It 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 doesn't matter. That's a very difficult because I'm from the suburbs too, northern Kentucky. Yeah, and it is the classic story of it doesn't happen here. Yeah, people can't they can't grasp the fact that somebody might have this affliction. You know, you got mothers and that are not you know, have a overdosing child or somebody that is sick and they won't call the ambulance because they don't know what the neighbors are going to think when that ambulance comes down that are pumping their stomach out front. Mm. I mean, you know, that yeah. is heavy stuff. That is. What do you think we can do? It's gotten better, but as far as the stigma, what do you think we can do as a state, as a country to continue the march and get people to open up that might not want to? And understand about this stuff. Get get educated. Continue to, to be able to push a healthy rhetoric toward, you know, what it is, what is addiction, education behind addiction, um, and kind of kind of supplement that with stories, you know, of of doctors, of lawyers, of of individuals who come from a certain area, who you know, if you you were to look at at first glance, you never thought that that person, you know, would have struggled with addiction, but fact of the matter is, is they have. Um, and being able to, to kind of get those stories out there so they can reach a broader audience. I think, I think honestly, in the last few years, we, we've done a good job at helping to destigmatize addiction. Um, at the same time, though, I do believe that there are certain people that you will never sway or, or, or destigmatize. Um, there are certain people that will hold on to these, 
irrational thoughts, these irrational points of view, and um, perpetuate that negativity. But at the, you know, it, the, you can't worry about the, the, those type of people. You just have to continue to push the message. So you know, even in something like this, a podcast, being able you know to to write movies, which we've been seeing more and more about. Uh, being able to write books, which we've been seeing more and more over, being able to do videos, being able to, to get on the news, being able to just speak to people about experiences and stories and have the ability to connect with them on a level that maybe they haven't been connected before because they haven't had the time or didn't put in the effort to hear a story like yours. And I think through that and just human connection, you, you can start to destigmatize addiction. Um, is it ever going to be completely destigmatized? No. But at the same time, we, we can make a dent in it. And I think we've been doing that. We just got to further those efforts. Yeah. And empower people that are going through it, just like you and I, when we were in the dark depths of hell, Yeah. that it's okay. We but, are who we are. We got to celebrate it. We got to focus it in a positive direction. And there are going to be people, even if it's their parents, that will never understand you can only do you. You're not going to, you can't fix anybody else. And a lot of us try and try and it send us down a deeper rabbit hole yeah. of ex trying to get acceptance where you've got to eventually push forward and surround yourself with a community of people that get it and help you propel yourself into a positive space. I agree. And, and listen, I don't take aim to dissuade people um, from points of view. I could care less, honestly. Um, if that is a byproduct of the work that I do, fantastic. I think that's great. Uh, but that is not my aim, nor that is nor is that my intention. My intention is to be able to hopefully, as you just stated, be able to reach someone um, through whatever medium that I'm, I'm reaching them at, whether it's a speaking engagement, a podcast like we're doing now, or whatever, to be able to hopefully give them a glimmer of hope that they can cling on to something in my story that says, maybe I can do that too. Because this is bigger than me. I don't work in treatment to, to boost my ego. I work in treatment to be able to help other people that are in the exact same situation that I was, that I was once in. And if I have the ability to do that through these sorts of mediums, through these sorts of things that I engage in, that's my purpose. Because if I can reach one person, you never know how many other people that individual might reach in turn. Right. That ripple can, can go out and be as large or as small, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just you're helping one individual. That individual, if they succeed and, and, and you're, you're able to help them and, and they turn their life around, goes out and helps another. That That's how this continues to grow. Um, that's what I'm doing it for. I mean, I, I don't... You're already doing a yeoman's job, God's work, by starting this, uh, working in recovery, bringing it home, helping our community. But one thing I love about you is that you're an incredible advocate for both mental health and addiction. Absolutely. And you made the decision early on to be a face for this. You're out in front, you do a lot of interviews, a lot of speaking engagements, which is amazing and takes a great amount of courage. What made you want to go that route and be a leader and an ambassador for the greater good? I don't think it was ever really a choice. I think I follow a path that, that is that I don't fully understand, but I know it's the right one. Um, and I didn't put it there. So I think I have some some gifts and traits 
terms of like speaking, in terms of, you know, connecting with people that allow me to do what I do and hopefully do it decently. Um, and when you're doing something like bringing a model of treatment, you know, a foreign model of treatment to, to an area that has never existed in, you're, you're facing that much resistance. You know, if you want to succeed, you really don't have a choice, you know? So it, it was kind of thrust upon me and um, I did what needed to be done in hopes of, you know, having this facility, for instance, be able to succeed and help people. And it has. So to be able to further that, I want to continue to try to do everything that I can um, to be able to reach more people. Because you know, there's some people that know we're here. You know, there, there's some people who know what we are. There's a lot that don't, right? And my responsibility is whether you come to our facility or not, that I'm going to assist you in getting some sort of help. Like that, that is, that is something that I take very seriously and something that I impart on every single one of my staff members. It doesn't matter if they come here or not. It doesn't matter. They, they might not be a medical fit. They might not be a clinical fit. They might not be, you know, a certain, they might have certain diagnoses that we're incapable of treating, but it is still our responsibility to have a direct kind of handoff to a facility or an individual who has the ability to help them. Um, so you do these things to be able to, you know, to, 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 to push that out, to hopefully get more people who have, like you just said, you know, as a byproduct of what you're doing, what you're saying, you know, the courage to reach out, something they may have never done before. Um, and you don't know how many people you can reach when you do it. On that point, what would you say to an individual, to the mother that is standing by the phone, scared to death of what's going to happen to their child? scared to death of facing it, what would you say to those people and what advice, what advice would you give them? To the mother, I would say reach out, reach out to a facility, reach out to someone um, who hopefully would have the ability to speak to you about the situation and, and be able to guide you on, on how to address it. To the individual who's struggling, there's hope. Even though you live right now, you don't even live, you exist in a very dark place, there's no such thing as hopeless. You may feel hopeless, but there is always hope. All you have to do is have a shred of willingness to take direction and try a different and try to walk down a different path. How you do that is by oftentimes picking up a telephone, picking up a telephone and, and calling somebody, whether it's someone you know, you know, whether it's a facility you researched, whether it, it's someone you're close to or not picking up the phone, talking about what's going on with you and, and putting a plan into place about how you're going to address it and then being able to and being willing, you know, to follow that direction once it's given. There is hope. There absolutely is hope. If I'm living today, that person that is listening to me either right now or that person in this hypothetical situation has the ability to live too. And hope is it's such a powerful thing. And when you get your mind around it, and understand that it's there, it can take you places that you never thought that you could be. Hope, so, is, hope is the greatest gift one human can give to another. Without a doubt. So as we wrap up, anything else you want to put out in the universe or discuss? You know, I just want to thank you for, for allowing me to, to come and, uh, and sit down with you here for a few minutes and, and talk about something that, that's obviously very important to me and I know very important to you. Um, I commend you for this work, man. You know, because you're you're in, in you're helping to destigmatize. You're helping 
you know, to get a message out to people who might have the chance, just by chance, to listen to it. And you don't know, you know, how many people you'd have the ability to affect that that you weren't aware of. Um, it's neat, and I, I I I thank you for allowing me to come, and uh, and I urge you to keep doing it. Well, you're a true leader, man, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. So thanks for being here, and I appreciate everything you do. Same to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.